I'm Ben Forrid. I'm Austin Letcher. And I'm Alyssa Mendel. And this is Chordscast. This podcast is created by the team at the Coordination of Rare Diseases at Sanford, or CORDS for short, which is a rare disease registry working to tie together patients and researchers, no matter their condition and no matter where they are in the world. In these episodes, you'll hear interviews with scientists, physicians, rare disease patients, and advocates, along with updates on our registry and ways that you can get involved. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Cast. My name, as always, is Ben Forrid, and I thank you for taking the time to hang out with me. This episode is being recorded before Rare Disease Day 2019, uh, but it's going to be released after Rare Disease Day 2019. So um, let me take a moment to wish you all a belated Happy Rare Disease Day. And um, I hope that you were able to take part in the, some of the festivities that were planned. Um, and as of this recording, there's a lot of events scheduled throughout really the world um, that you can find online. And uh, as for the Chords team, Austin and I will be spending our, our rare disease week in, on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Uh, with the Every Life Foundation. Um, so again, um, <laughs> on the back end of this, if Austin and I were able to uh, meet with you while we were in D.C. or maybe just bump into each other, put a face with a name, um, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it's always great to to meet new people too and to um, hear stories from the Raiders East community. Um, thank you so much for all that you do. In this episode, Austin spent some time with one of our partners, All Things Kabuki, to talk about Kabuki Syndrome. Uh, he sat down with Renee King, the president and founder, as well as Dr. Olaf Bodemer, the director of the Roya Kabuki program at Boston Children's Hospital. Um, and you're going to hear a, a wonderful blend of both the advocacy pieces and um, really how important it is to reach out and participate in research um, and find your community as well as hear a lot of the scientific stuff too. Um, you know, the research that's going on in this space is really interesting. And um, the work that Dr. Bodemer and his team are doing in Boston is, is remarkable. Now, this is going to be an information-packed episode. So uh, thanks again for tuning in and enjoy. Hi, this is Austin Letcher. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Cast. I'm here today with Dr. Bodemer and Renee King. Renee King is with the All Things Kabuki organization, which is a partner organization that works with Cords to develop their rare disease patient registry. And Dr. Bodemer is an expert in Kabuki syndrome. Uh, Dr. Bodemer, would you uh, give us a quick introduction and in, in your background and... Um, and, and where you are today? 
Yes, absolutely. I'm uh, calling in from Boston Children's Hospital in Boston. Um, I'm a trained pediatrician and clinical geneticist for the last 20 uh, years or so. And I have developed in recent years a particular interest in uh, Kabuki syndrome. Great. Thanks for that introduction. Renee, would you give uh, our listeners kind of a background on um, your connection to Kabuki syndrome? Uh, yes. I, my name is Renee King. I live in Wasilla, Alaska, and I'm the parent of a 17-year-old diagnosed with Kabuki syndrome in 2001 and the founder of All Things Kabuki, a U.S. patient advocacy group. Could you uh, describe to our listeners a little bit more about uh, how Kabuki syndrome presents itself? Well, in, in my daughter's case, she she um, has a pretty complex medical history, and um, she has uh, 60-ish diagnoses. So when she was born, we knew right away that um, there was something going on with her, and we've just been trying to uncover the mysteries of the disease <laughs> since. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a lot of diagnoses. I, I imagine, um, you know, that's one of the reasons we hear that stat uh, all too often of rare disease patients often being misdiagnosed. Did I'm imagining a lot of those diagnoses were, were misdiagnoses. Is that correct, Renee? Um, there are underlying diagnoses of Kabuki syndrome. So uh, some of those include uh intellectual delay, she's diagnosed autism spectrum disorder, uh, and then other uh, smaller things that affect her organ, like, or, or different organs, like uh, uh, strabismus and amblyopia, so she has some eye conditions, she's partially deaf, uh, th- those types of things. So these are overall diagnoses that she has presented with or currently deals with. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I I suppose that's why it's called a syndrome. There's a spectrum of uh, conditions that that you deal with. Now, uh, I want to take it over to Dr. Dr. Bodemer here really quick. And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the spectrum of those symptoms? Does each patient um, exhibit the same type of um, expression of the the disease or are there there different uh, types or variants of it? Yeah, Kabuki syndrome uh, touches on many different organ systems, and in many ways, each individual patient is unique in his or her presentation. Um, so, for example, we know that about up to 25%, one quarter of patients with Kabuki syndrome may have uh, cardiac uh, anomalies, cardiac defects of variable uh, severity. About 20% may have renal uh, anomalies. And then there's a spectrum when it comes to intellectual disability, uh, developmental delays. There again is a a spectrum. Some patients may present at the more severe end of the spectrum. Others may actually present more on the milder end of the spectrums. And then you have anyone else uh, kind of in between from uh, in between the two extreme ends. Um, We also have to kind of realize that there is also significant variability uh, at the genotype level, this is a genetic condition um, whose uh, ideology is genetic. Uh, there are genetic misspellings that cause Kabuki syndrome. And each patient, in addition to 
the unique presentation may actually also have a unique genotype. So I kind of want to back up a little bit and ask you another question, Dr. Bodemer. Uh, how, how did you end up um, falling into uh, you know, working with Kabuki syndrome? Did you just have one patient and then another or have a cluster? or how, Did you and Renee connect? Can you tell me that story a little bit? Yeah, we, we started about two years ago uh, to become more um, interested in Kabuki syndrome uh, following the diagnosis of a, of a young child from uh, uh, Europe. Uh, we were approached by a family whose child had a rare condition, rare genetic condition, um, and you know, they, to some extent, underwent a diagnostic odyssey. And um, we became intrigued that we were able to diagnose the child um, fairly quickly um, based on the fact that the child presented with the typical features of Kabuki syndrome. And that family at some point asked us, well, what would it take to start a more dedicated, focused on, on Kabuki-focused program at Boston Children's? And we basically gave them a laundry list of what it would take. And that family actually made it possible to kickstart the Roya Kabuki uh, program at Boston Children's. And since that time, about two years ago, uh, we have been involved in both uh, clinical management of Kabuki syndrome. Uh, we have started uh, scientific research on Kabuki syndrome to better understand the underlying mechanisms and to also start working on a therapy for Kabuki syndrome. That's awesome. I, I want to get into some of that research later on, but before I get there, I, I kind of want to ask Renee another question uh, before we get too far down the road. R Renee, can you tell me when, uh, or do you remember the exact moment when you decided to start All Things Kabuki? And, and can you tell me that story and, and why you did it? Um, in, in 2013, um, one of the other parents had posted a a sort of a, a rant, if you will, on social media about um, how difficult it was to obtain um, help for her child at Christmas because of the age of her daughter. Um, she was not eligible for a, a specific program um, because she was 13. And so I had uh, I had just reached out and said, hey, I would like to adopt your daughter at Christmas. And so uh, what ended up happening is uh, we shared we shared the situation as sort of a random acts of kindness thing. And we had a, a unreal amount of people that wanted to help. But then that's the moment that I actually learned how much of a struggle um, so many other families in the lower 48 we're going through financially and um you know we we live in alaska we're we're in a unique state and um while the lower 48 was kind of going through the recession we had not hit that yet and so we enlisted all these people to um kind of adopt these kabuki syndrome families that couldn't afford to buy christmas gifts for their families well we just decided to call it Operation Kabuki Christmas, so it would it would have a name. And in that, we started learning of the need in the lower 48 for people to 
have resources to explain what this syndrome is that their kids have. And we completely inadvertently started um, All Things Kabuki. My husband and I self-funded it uh, for a year with my, my parents' support. And then uh, we, we couldn't do it on military <laughs> pay anymore. So we decided to apply for uh, nonprofit status and we were approved in just a, a matter of months. So um, it started as a random acts of kindness. Uh, gesture. That's so cool. I, I love that story, and I've I've really enjoyed watching your your group grow over the years. Uh, you know, it's been fun to to see you interact with the lower forty eight. And um, I'm curious what your your relationship is with the the Roya Kabuki program at Boston Children's. Uh, are you aware of this other family that uh, inquired about uh, Kabuki research and? with uh, Dr. Bodemer, or can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, Dr. Bodemer, if you want to go ahead first, that's fine. Yeah, um, so the, uh, the, the the family kind of kick-started, the Roya family, uh, Roya is the, the first name of the child, who is kind of uh, the, um, the, 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 who provides the inspiration for the program. Um, and we kind of center the program uh, really on three pillars, if you like. One pillar is clinical management, uh, because we feel very strongly, given the, the fact that Kabuki syndrome <clears throat> touches on so many organ systems, that we needed a multidisciplinary, holistic approach to patient care. So we identified, for example, at Boston Children's, um, subspecialists, uh, who are now our Kabuki champions in gastroenterology, endocrinology, to name a few, um, and to provide the, the best possible care and management to these families and, 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 and children. Uh, the second pillar um, is uh, around education, raising awareness uh, for Kabuki syndrome in the medical community as well as in the layman's uh, community. And lastly, the third pillar is built on translational and basic research um, to further our understanding of the natural history of Kabuki syndrome, to understand the underlying genetic mechanisms of Kabuki syndrome and really work towards uh, developing a therapy for some aspects of Kabuki syndrome. Well put. I, I, I like the three pillars that, that you describe and uh, I, I think that sounds like a great program. I'd, I'd like to hear, uh, Renee, your, your kind of connection to the program now kind of on the advocacy side. Can you tell us more about that? Well, we were really fortunate to be introduced to uh, Dr. Bodmer and his team uh, just over a year ago um, from by another, another parent that had met them. And um, Olaf and his team had traveled to our, our first uh, conference uh, that we had hosted in Cleveland in November 2017. And so that was my first opportunity to meet them and um, begin a collaboration. And, uh, you know, Olaf and, and Tara and the rest of their team have been really instrumental in a lot of our efforts that we're, we're working on or have done in moving forward with raising awareness in the medical community, but also um, just in general. And they have uh, generously 
you know, come to, to our last event as well. And, um, we, we plan to have them at our conference again this year and, um, just continue to, to work with them on one, um, enlisting families to, to participate in their research opportunities and, um, you know, try to, to do our part so that they can be successful in hopefully finding a treatment or care for our kids. That's awesome. Yeah, I think you should uh, plug the date of your, your next event really quick. Do you have that, that planned out yet? Uh, we do. It's uh, July 19th and 20th, and it's in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, we'll have more information on our website. We have a, a, an event uh, set up on our social media page, too. Awesome. All of our listeners can look out for that. If you know anyone with Kabuki syndrome or any any family members that are affected um, by that, definitely get in touch with Renee and all things Kabuki. Um, I'm going to take this back to you, Renee. Uh, I think it's on topic to talk about what kind of things uh, does all things Kabuki provide as far as support for patients. And can you tell us a little bit more about your advocacy and how you get involved with the, the patient community? Um, I think our, I mean, our biggest, our biggest goal is to support families, um, whether it be through um, financial aspects or, you know, more importantly, um, just letting them know that they have a, a community that is here to support them and um, to provide any resources that we can to help them in their advocacy efforts. In the end, we, we want to support families, but we also want to to grow advocates as well because we, we, we will always be our child's best advocate, but somebody has to get out there and talk to people about Kabuki syndrome, especially the medical providers that have never heard of the disorder. So we, we have um, brochures that we produce and we have medical advisors like Olaf um, that review them and make sure that the content is accurate. And so we provide those and small awareness cards and um, we just created this great uh, welcome folder for new families with, with all kinds of information so they can sit and hopefully avoid Google. <laughs> <laughs> Because, because you don't always see the beauty of the disorder, you know, when you, when you Google a syndrome. Um, so, so if we can provide the tools to, for families to get out, to advocate, to raise awareness, um, then we are, you know, we are meeting our ultimate goal. I love how you put that right there. You don't often see the, the beauty in the disorders there. Yeah, I think it can be really scary when people Google a a syndrome that their their kiddo or they've been diagnosed with for the first time and they they read a lot of that medical jargon and uh, don't understand it and that's that's intimidating so the work that you do is really crucial into coaching and and uh, shepherding people uh, down the right path of uh, turning their diagnosis into advocacy and, and something productive so wonderful yeah. wonderful job Renee um, I want to jump back to uh, Dr. Bodemer and ask him a little bit more about um, on that note of, of getting a diagnosis of Kabuki syndrome. I think that's so fantastic that uh, this this child uh, child's family uh, Roya came to you and 
and Boston's Children's was actually able to start a program researching Kabuki syndrome. That's incredible. But can you tell us a little bit more of what you recommend for a family or a patient coming to you and, and first receiving that Kabuki syndrome diagnosis? What do you tell them? We kind of try to be as honest and forthcoming as possible. And we always uh, try to put it into the uh, right context. Um, I, I'm, you know, I have a very positive approach uh, to uh, to different diagnoses in a sense that parents can use and family can use this information to their benefit. Uh, and frequently, we see these families after they have undergone a long diagnostic odyssey with many confusing and conflicting information being given to the families. Sometimes a clinical diagnosis of Kabuki syndrome is made only for the genetic test to reveal a completely different diagnosis. Um, What I always tell the parents is a diagnosis is important for several reasons. One reason it's uh, the, the probably the most important reason puts an end to the diagnostic odyssey. It makes them feel that they now understand, at least to some extent, what the underlying diagnosis is. It also gives them <clears throat> information about the, the, the future. What, what's the prognosis? Uh, are there any complications <clears throat> to be expected? Is there anything else the family needs to be on the lookout? Um, what's also very reassuring to the families is that you know, in most cases with Kabuki syndrome confirmed genetically, the genetic mutation is unique to the individual patient. It's not inherited, and therefore there is no chance for this to happen again in a future pregnancy. Uh, so it informs the family about genetic risk, future risk. And it also opens, in my mind, the, the, the door to a possible therapy. Because we will only be able to offer therapies to individuals with confirmed genetic diagnoses. If I only have a diagnosis made on a, on a clinical basis based on clinical symptoms, you know, it could be any gene could underlie, any genetic mutation could underlie uh, this clinical um, phenotype, this clinical picture. So, um, you know, a possible treatment could not be applied. I think... Uh, it- it's a wonderful service that you provide there at Boston's Children's. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about the research itself. Do you have uh, an entire lab there at Boston's Children, Children's, Dr. Bodemer? Yeah, I, I think the first thing I should say, it's, it's a team effort. Um, and the research is only as good as the team. Um, so we have uh, a program coordinator, we have research technicians, uh, we have postdoctoral fellows, junior faculty involved, and we have a, a research lab that researches various um, basic aspects of Kabuki syndrome. Um, we also have a translational research component with clinical trials um, um, component to the research program. So this is very important for us to understand what the natural history of the disease is. So how do these children, how do the symptoms in, 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 in a child develop? How do they change over time? We now understand, for example, that the, the symptoms of Kabuki syndrome, for example, are very much different in an adolescent 
compared to a, uh, an infant or a toddler with Kabuki syndrome. So understanding that evolution of disease will also provide us with clues as to um, you know, how to approach, for example, therapeutic development. And then I, lastly, I think I, I should also mention that it's not only Boston Children's. There are many um, established uh, research groups and experienced uh, clinicians, experts in Kabuki syndrome in the United States, in Europe, uh, and in Asia, um, and particularly here in the United States, you know, Hans Bjornsson uh, from um, um, Baltimore, um, Andrew Lindsay from Cincinnati Children's, uh, Margaret Adam from uh, Seattle Children's. So it's a, it's a community. And I think um, what makes it really exciting is that we, we collaborate, we work together, we share our experience and expertise, we share samples uh, to advance the course and to really eventually develop a therapy for Kabuki syndrome. Yeah, I, collaboration is key. I love it when I, I hear that word. It's it's so important to, to share your resources, especially in the, the rare disease community and not reinvent the wheel um, or anything. Uh, I kind of want to get Renee's thoughts because I think it can be kind of scary when when patients here or family members here research you know they they get really nervous about what what's going to happen to them but I I think this would be a good opportunity Renee for you to kind of tell patients and, and families why it's important to participate in research can you speak to that a little bit uh, yes I I've actually recently shared with our community on a newsletter about the importance of research and um, when my daughter was born in 2001, they had not yet found either the, the first gene known to cause Kabuki syndrome, so there was only the ability to clinically diagnose. We had uh, been reached out to and participated in two research uh, opportunities, one at Boston Children's and one at CHOP um, in 2003 when they were trying to find, you know, the cause. and. I was eager to participate because I wanted to understand my daughter's disease and there was so little information out there at that time. Um, so, so we did, we, we sent blood in, we were, we actively participated. And when we got a, a notification that one of the doctors thought they had found um, the cause and then it turned out it wasn't, I got a little bit discouraged and um, decided in my head <laughs> that um, research wasn't going to benefit my child in, in our lifetime. So I opted not to follow or, or participate in it after that. And I actually did a, did a, a big disservice to myself and to my daughter. Um, and when I met Dr. Bjornsson in person a couple years ago, he had explained to me why it was so important to to know my daughter's uh, get a genetic diagnosis, and at the time I didn't know she had one um, because they had used bank blood from from the the two thousand three <laughs> research project. But um, he did explain to me exactly what uh, Dr. Bodmer had just shared that you can um, better understand you know some of the underlying complications that could come with a specific mutation and 
that we wouldn't be able to participate in future research if we didn't know which gene was affected and those types of things. And so I had a new desire to understand and get involved. Um, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. So I can I see both sides of um, the, the family, you know, side of research and why, um, I, I guess I kind of understand why some people might not want to be involved. But in the end, um, it's, it's crucial that we do because researchers really can't do their job if we don't participate because they need, you know, our, our kids, they need the patient participation. And it's only because of research that we know at least two genes that cause a disorder and um, maybe what we can expect with certain underlying conditions. And we'll never have a treatment for our kids if we don't, if we don't join their efforts and do our part as families. So I absolutely um, support research and I, I truly believe that if we all come together, families, um, the community, researchers and clinicians, that um, we could see a, a change or affect change for our kids in our lifetime, which I didn't, I didn't think we would, but we've come a long way. Thanks for that firsthand perspective. Yeah, I think it's, it's really important and it's easy to get uh, discouraged by potentially not having uh, a treatment or therapy um, available in your, your child's lifetime and participating in clinical trial, but it's absolutely crucial. You're right with uh, every rare disease patient participating. We, we gain a little bit more knowledge and you know understanding of the disease just a little bit more and a little closer to that, that treatment or therapy. Um, Dr. Bodemer, you, you mentioned that there are some clinical trials going on. So do you have, uh, you know, are those being conducted um, in, in patients or do you have animal research uh, going on that you're collaborating with? Uh, so I think the, the, the clinical trial I was referring to is a natural history study that's ongoing at Boston Children's Hospital in patients with Kabuki syndrome. It's non-interventional, so we don't have a drug or... Um, you know, any other uh, intervention that, that is currently tested in the trial. Um, but I think the natural history study is uh, uh, critical for future uh, clinical trials testing um, uh, pharmaceutical drugs uh, as it kind of serves as, an, uh, as a basis to understand the, uh, the evolution of disease and also to help identify what are the critical unmet needs for the patients and their families? What is most important? Uh, what has the most significant impact on quality of life in these patients? And to potentially use that as an endpoint in a future clinical trial. I, I want to take this opportunity to mention uh, another uh, database that uh, Re Renee and I have been working on with their, their patient registry. Um, Renee, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you've been using uh, the data in the patient registry to perhaps inform your community or other researchers and physicians um, and why people should enroll in the CORDS Kabuki registry? Well, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't personally done a lot with the, the data lately, 
Um, and I know Olaf is, is working on um, a project with that, and I'll, I'll let him talk about that. But um, we, do, we do promote uh, parent participation in the survey that we had developed because we really want to be able to um, help parents understand that the things that their child is experiencing they're not, you know, it's okay, or, or here's what worked for us. You're not the only one kind of going through this because the, the underlying conditions that our kids experience are sometimes so bizarre that um, it, it, it doesn't make sense. But when you get on our forum and say, hey, this is what's going on, you will have parents, you know, we'll just use their patellas for, for an example, um, in our situation, my daughter used to collapse just randomly and she would, she would scream and we didn't know what was going on or why it didn't make sense. And our kids have a crazy high pain threshold. So for them to, to experience pain, like my daughter was, was really, um, concerning. And I got on our network and I said, this is what's going on. And I had a dozen moms, probably close to that anyway, um, say, oh, it, her patella is dislocating, you should go to, to see an orthopedic surgeon. I thought, what? Um, <laughs> because I had never heard of such a thing. And sure enough, that was the case. And, and she, uh, I, I went to the surgeon, but this, this is what's going on. This appears to be common in, in kids with my daughter's disease. And the surgeon agreed and took care of it. And, she, you know, she, she's never had her knees dislocate since. So, we, we ended up making that um, survey because we constantly see families get online and say, this is going on or what could this be? And so uh, very long, I know it's a hundred something questions, but there's so much information in there that in the end, we want to be able to say, okay, of a hundred or 200 uh, parents, parents reporting this many said that their kids have dislocating patellas or or a heart this heart defect or sleep apnea and um, in the end we want to develop a tool for families to be able to take to um, you know their clinicians especially those not familiar with Kabuki syndrome so when you say I need my child tested for sleep apnea um, it's not disregarded at first if, if that makes sense <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's perfectly clear. I mean, uh, I know the survey hasn't been live that long, so it'll be great to get some more longitudinal data and have people fill it out year after year to uh, get some good data in there. Uh, and I really think patient registries play an important role into um, referring people to natural history studies, such as um, the one that Dr. Bodemer in Boston Children's is working working with. I imagine you have some other sites, too. Um, what are you looking at, Dr. Bodemer, when, when you see that data? Can you add anything onto that? I, I think um, it provides the registry data, especially when self-reported, provides us uh, kind of with a different, unique perspective. Um, it's not necessarily something that we capture in the natural history study that we do in the clinic. It kind of provides us that personal uh, perspective, you know, what 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 are the unmet needs of those families? What makes them worry? Uh, and that's, you know, in a way, 
complements the natural history study that's ongoing in a, in a, in a, at an institution. Um, so I think it's very helpful. We looked at the data. It's really interesting to see some of the results. Um, healthcare utilization, for example, um, organ systems that are, um, you know, that, that concern the families, like you mentioned, the, uh, Rene, the patellar supplications. That's not necessarily something we would capture in clinic. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's very helpful, very useful uh, to, to have these data sets available, in particular it, it, when, you know, filled in longitudinally. I think it provides us with a longitudinal um, aspect as well. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think it's, it's really important for families to be involved and, and uh, enter in as much information as they can over time. And, and that, that really puts them in the, the driver's seat, I think. So for any of you out there listening that haven't participated in, in the registry uh, questionnaire yet, you know, here's your chance to go participate and have a real say in how, how research is being conducted in the future. And um, w- with that, I think that's a good good place to kind of end. I, I want to open it up to you guys for any last words or, or calls to action. Uh, Renee, is there anything else you want to say? Um, I think the only other thing I'd like to add is for parents that are listening, um, and this goes with any any you know diagnosis, or especially when it's when it's a rare disease. Um, that it's okay. Well, first they first it's important to take time to process um, that your your child does have a rare disease, and I think that um, you know in the back of our minds we off we know obviously something is going on with our child, and like Dr. Bodemer had said, the the diagnosis gives give it's a in the end it's a tool and it's an answer for us but um you know families need to take the time to process the diagnosis but then i think it's also important for parents and even extended family but but i'm speaking mostly to parents that um, it's okay to grieve and you won't do it once um you know i find myself with Ricky will be 18 this year. And um, I think that you, you go through a a flood of emotions over, you know, the course of, of raising your rare kiddo. But um, I think it's important to grieve maybe the life you had expected or hoped for them, but embrace the, this, this is your new norm. So, um, you know, embrace it. And, um, I think the other thing is to make sure you build a good medical team and, uh, you know, get, get that team on the same page as you and then, um, connect with other families, get, get online, connect with us. We will support you. Um, but the, the biggest thing I would say as a parent is to always go with your gut, no, no matter what you know your child better than than any medical provider, than in, any family member or friend. If you feel like something's not right, it's probably not. So, um, you know, it's, it, it 
it's exhausting sometimes to, to raise a, a kiddo that's medically complex and it can be lonely. So it's just important not to isolate, you know, reach out. It's not always easy to reach out, but even if it's through an email to us, um, you know, our team will, will offer any supports that we can. We can connect families with others that are local to them. Um, there, there's hundreds of, of people in the Kabuki syndrome community that are eager to embrace and love on and, and support others. So um, don't be afraid to, to say, hey. <laughs> yeah, well put. Yeah, I think it's so important to connect and, and build that community. And I, I love what you said earlier about you know, finding the beauty in the diagnosis and each, each child is definitely unique in, in that aspect and great advice with trusting your gut. Um, Dr. Bodemer, can you uh, give us any, any last words or um, maybe some advice for families out there listening to this podcast? Yeah, first of all, I think I'm, I'm most grateful to be given the opportunity for the last two years to work with these wonderful families. And it really has been quite an experience, I have to say, to participate in the family gatherings and see how outgoing the uh, the individuals are and the families are. And uh, we have really embraced a community we haven't known before. So I think I'm very grateful. I'm also very grateful to my team and, uh, you know, to everyone who has been involved in this effort. And uh, my advice to, to families are, I mean, look forward, be positive. Um, you know, you have very special children and um, you, you couldn't ask for more. Uh, it, um, we are always here to help. There's always someone around the corner. We are one phone call away as are all the other experts. And I think everybody is very willing to answer any questions, any concerns. Um, send us emails and we'll be happy to, to answer and help wherever possible. Well, I'd, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank, thank you both, Dr. Bodemer and Renee. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, and I'm looking forward to getting this information out in the hands of as many patients as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. The theme music for Chordscast is borrowed with permission from Scott Holmes' song, So Happy. To learn more about Sanford Research and our registry chords, visit us at sanfordresearch.org slash chords. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions, comments, stories, or feedback to chords at sanfordhealth.org. Find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Sanford Chords. The content of Chordscast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. We'll see you next time on Cords Cast.